This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 152. Hey there, Metamorphs. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, the creator and head author of the Metamore City Story Universe. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fiction with you, fresh off the writing desk. I'll also keep you up to date on my writing endeavors. But first, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 10 in my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. No recap this week, folks. We're going straight to the story. Be warned, this episode is at the Temple of Hedonism, so it will feature some explicit sexual content. If you're in mixed company, you might want to put on the headphones for this one. The Lost and the Least A Novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 10 It was a little afternoon when John arrived back at the Hedonist Temple. Mistress Jasmine was in her office, reading something on her computer, while a naked acolyte knelt under her desk and ate her pussy. Jasmine stroked the young man's hair absently while he worked, the way a human might pet a favorite dog. Her spade-tipped tail made little twitches of pleasure as he nibbled and sucked. John cleared his throat and knocked lightly on the doorframe. The acolyte did not alter his behavior in the slightest, but Jasmine rolled her head to the side and met John's gaze, smiling lazily. Hey, welcome back. I was getting worried about you. John ducked his head in submission. Sorry, mistress. Kate had a hell of a hangover this morning. I wanted to make sure she was okay before I left. Ah, John. Ever the gentleman. Jasmine closed her eyes and arched her back as a wave of pleasure washed visibly through her. John blushed. Not at the sex, of course, but at Jasmine's gently mocking words. Gentleman was not a word that could ever have been applied to John. Well, not since they stripped it off of me, he thought bitterly. But that was an old wound, and it only stung for a moment. Of more immediate importance now was the subtext behind Jasmine's words, and thus the reason Jasmine had sent for him. He flashed back to Kate's fitness for duty evaluation yesterday and felt a stab of sympathy. Kate wasn't the only one stuck in a kind of probationary status. I can come back later if you like, John said, as Jasmine came down from her climax. Jasmine tisked. No need, I'm good now. She sat up a little straighter, grabbed the acolyte's hair by the scruff, and pulled him up for a kiss. The young man was sporting an impressive erection, and John took a moment to admire his tanned skin, his tight and well-muscled ass, 
and the gentle ripples of muscle on his lean and athletic frame. Jasmine certainly knew how to find the pretty ones, of either sex. The priestess noticed John's lustful examination. She broke the kiss and pushed the acolyte gently back against her desk. Do you want to try him? she asked John, as she idly reached up and gripped the young man's rigid shaft. The young man moaned and twitched under her touch. Anson here has a very talented mouth. John considered it seriously for a moment. It was a test, he knew, and Jasmine would be pleased if he did as she suggested. More than likely, she would even join in, and that always made for an entertaining afternoon. The things Jasmine didn't know about sex hadn't been invented yet, and John had only gotten a smidgen of sexual energy from Kate last night, so he was unquestionably hungry. Still, he hesitated. Young Anson seemed out of it, drunk on Jasmine's pheromones and the daedric essence that swirled around her like a fog. He hadn't been at the temple for long, and John didn't know him well enough to gauge his preferences, but he didn't recall ever seeing Anson with another man. In his present, addled state, the acolyte might well submit to anything the priests asked of him, but how would he feel about it later? John didn't know, and as far as he was concerned, that was a pretty damned crucial bit of information. John could always shift into a female form, of course, but that would be equally presumptuous. Just because Anson was pleasuring Jasmine didn't say anything about his desires the rest of the time. So instead, John smiled at the priestess and put an ironic lilt in his voice. Maybe later. Right now, I think your boy needs to go take care of something. He flicked his tail at the acolyte's rigid cock. Jasmine's smile cooled by a few degrees, and her eyes narrowed fractionally. Maybe so, she conceded. She looked up at Anson and gave him another tug. Well done, my child. Now why don't you run along and find somewhere to put this? I think Rosalind's up in the dining room. She might be in a receptive mood. The clouds faded a little from Anson's expression. He rose shakily to his feet and bowed to her. Yes, mistress. Thank you, mistress. Jasmine gave him a dismissive wave of her hand, and Anson hurried out one hand stroking his cock in something akin to desperation. Once he was gone, John shut the door behind him. So, John, Jasmine purred as she slowly rotated her chair to face him. How's it going with your detective? John took a moment to compose his thoughts, then told her about last night's events at the bar. He alighted over the details about the vampire-allied gangers, Kate's blackout, and the subsequent aftermath. Instead, he emphasized the ways she had let go of her inhibitions and given herself over to the moment. That was the sort of thing Jasmine wanted to hear. It aligned with the church's ethos, and the work John was supposed to be doing on this assignment. She did not need to hear about John playing guardian angel to a woman who had made herself dangerously vulnerable. It sounds like a wonderful evening, Jasmine said approvingly. What happened next? John did not miss a beat. I took her back to her apartment, made sure she got some fluids in her, then fed on her and let her go to sleep. No need to mention that the feeding didn't involve any sex. The priestess nodded, accepting this. 
She let her gaze drift around the room as she said, in a casual voice, So, clearly she's learning to unwind a little. Has she shown any interest in fucking anyone else? Expanding her options? John felt immediately wary. If she has, she hasn't talked to me about it. Why do you ask? Jasmine rolled the shoulder in a careless shrug. You've been working with her for nearly two months now. It's time to start thinking about your exit strategy. Exit strategy? I thought we were agreed that Kate was my top priority. She is, Jasmine said. She gave him her full attention now, her amber eyes locked on his. That doesn't mean you shouldn't have a plan for getting out. You were one of my best missionaries, John. Sure, the Moraine assignment fucked with your head, I get that. But I can't have you on the bench forever. A priest with your experience should be handling five or six cases a month, minimum, not slumming it for weeks on end with one burned-out detective. There was nothing John could say to that. She was right. He was a professional. The church counted on priests like him to be out there in the world, teaching people the ways of hedonism, drawing them into the fold, and planting babies in them without telling them. That was the part of the job that usually went unspoken. Incubi couldn't reproduce by mating with succubi. They needed a human host. The resulting children looked human, effectively were human for all practical purposes, until sometime in adolescence, when they absorbed enough lustful energy from the people around them to complete their metamorphosis. Once that happened, the church would swoop in and rescue the newly minted Daedra, training them to use their abilities safely. It was what they had done for John, back when he had changed. John didn't know how many children he'd sired over his years as a priest. It wasn't something he had been encouraged to think about, and since Incubi usually made a point of fucking women who were also fucking at least one other man, there was no way to be certain which of the resulting pregnancies were John's. It was the church's job to look out for those kids. It was John's job to make sure they had the chance to be born. Since women generally didn't want to give birth to an incipient demon, that meant he had to be sneaky about it. But then he had met Delilah Moraine, and everything had changed. Delilah had wanted him, had wanted his child, someone to remember you by, she had said. Delilah had known exactly what he was. She had known it for months while their relationship deepened from lust to something stronger, and John found himself more and more tightly ensnared. Incubi weren't supposed to fall in love. It was unprofessional. It was stupid. And, of course, it was incredibly risky, as John's resulting brush with death had demonstrated. There was no way he and Delilah could have continued their relationship much longer. The threat of discovery was too great. So before he left, John took off his fertility suppression amulet and gave Delilah what she wanted. Someone to remember you by. Delilah's chambermaid and sometime lover, Isabel, was with them that night, as she had often been during their months of courtship. To John's astonishment, she made the same request. He'd gotten the pictures in his email just a few weeks ago. Two beautiful women, each holding a baby in her arms. Jeanette Isabel Moraine and Jonathan Vincent Depardieu, according to the captions. 
none of John's children had ever been real to him until that moment. And John knew, because of the danger involved, that he would never be part of their lives. His children were real now, but he would never get to see them grow up. As Jasmine had so eloquently put it, it had fucked with his head. I know, he said, drawing his thoughts forcibly back to the present. Look, I get what you're saying, but I don't think Kate's in a place where we can push her right now. She's not exactly in touch with her feelings. I really think this is going to be a long-term project. Jasmine smiled thinly, like he wanted Moraine to be. John winced and looked away. There was a long moment before Jasmine spoke again. When she did, there was a measure of gentleness in her voice. Listen, I know you've been getting in touch with your human side lately. John snorted, but Jasmine shook her head. I'm serious. Your essence may be Suspirus, but you've still got a human soul, and that shit's always going to be in there. Fucking with you. Tempting you. She leaned forward and pulled her chair closer to him. Sometimes, when your guard is down, you're going to catch yourself wanting the things they want. Sentiment. Safety. Comfort. Her voice took on an ironic lilt. A soulmate. We all want that, sometimes. John's vision had gone blurry. He blinked it away in irritation. Wow, what a horrible thing to want, he muttered. Jasmine didn't rise to the bait. It's not horrible, she said, still with that infuriatingly gentle tone. It's just human. And yeah, that's a part of you. But it's not why you're here. She reached over and squeezed his leg, just above the knee. You're an immortal incarnation of lust, John. A walking fertility god. That's the part of you that's eternal. Your detective? She's gonna get old. She's gonna die. And a hundred years after she's gone, you're still gonna be out there fucking people, with just as much hunger and urgency as you had when you were twenty. Because that's who you are. John nodded, a bit stiffly. It was hard to even think about being hundreds of years old, about still going on when all the young lordlings he had been raised with were just ashes in the ground. Well, maybe not Morgan, he thought. Not if she stays out of the sunlight, anyway. Okay, John said, his voice hoarse. So Kate's going to die. So did Gundy. Jasmine cocked her head. Gundy? My dog, John said. My mom got him for me when I was six. Rescued him from an animal shelter. Lord Gunderson was his name, but I called him Gundy. Big, fluffy, slobbery mutt who loved to cuddle. He slept next to me every night. Took up more than half the bed, but I never cared. John let out a soft laugh. <laughs> Father hated him. Said he was the most useless creature he'd ever seen. But he was mine, and I loved him. John looked up at Jasmine and saw a knowing smile on her face. She was a smart woman. He didn't need to spell out the rest for her. How Gundy had gotten sick when John was thirteen and had to be put down. 
how his heart had been broken but had gradually healed, or how the pain and sorrow of losing Gundy didn't negate the good times they had shared. It's a lot like that, yeah, Jasmine said, her voice low and a little wistful. I wish it could say it gets easier, but it doesn't. John raised his eyebrows. But would you take it back, if you could? No, Jasmine admitted. But after a while, you start to... space them out more, I suppose. Easier that way. She let out a rueful chuckle. (laughs) But maybe you're too young to worry about that yet. You think your detective's turning into another Gundy? In spite of her gentle tone, John felt a stab of fear. I don't know yet. What happens if she does? Jasmine shrugged easily. If you can keep her, you can have her. I won't stop you. If it goes that way, though, then she's not an assignment anymore. She's a hobby. And I expect you to pursue your hobbies on your own time. John considered this. Meaning you'd give me a different assignment. Jasmine nodded. After a moment, he ventured, If that happens, I'd like to stay off the cuckoo work. The Lightbringers are already looking for a reason to take my scalp. If I plant any more hellspawn without consent, that could be all the excuse they need. Plus, he thought, I can't get those pictures out of my head. Jasmine's lips twisted in irritation, though John thought it was probably mostly directed at the Lightbringers. That's a fair point, she admitted, grudgingly. All right, you've got a deal. If I can get you back in the field winning converts, it will be worth it. She rose, and John did likewise. As they headed for the door, she gave him an encouraging pat on the ass. Keep me in the loop on your detective. I will, ma'am. As he made his way back to his quarters, John thought about Jasmine's offer. The head priestess was giving him an out, a chance to keep Kate in his life, without trying to get her pregnant or convert her to hedonism. But, like everything in the church, it came with strings attached. Kate knew what John was, of course. She knew that he could never be sexually exclusive with her, not without killing her in the process. But knowing what he was and knowing what he did were two different things— If she found out what his work for the church entailed, would she want anything to do with him? I'm not doing that anymore, he told himself firmly. It's in the past. But you did it, an accusing voice inside him said. How many women are out there, right now, raising your little time bombs without knowing it? How many people did you curse to the same fate as your mother? John clenched his fists at that thought. His mother had died suddenly on a trip overseas, less than two years after Count Halloway had sent John away. The doctors said it was an undiagnosed heart defect, exacerbated by the medicine Mother was taking for depression. Privately, John suspected that Mother had been helped along by some of Halloway's friends in the intelligence community, but he could never prove it. Not that it matters. She's just as dead either way. John pushed down the grief, as he had so many times before. The guilt, however, remained. Someday, sooner or later, his past was going to come back to haunt him. 
Some teenager whose mother John had fucked was going to start manifesting powers as an incubus or succubus, and whatever happened next, John was going to be responsible for it. When that happens, I'll figure it out, he told himself. I've got other things to worry about right now. Such as the fact that his incubus side was starving. Turning away from the priest's quarters, John headed upstairs toward the dining room. With any luck, Anson and Rosalind would still be there, and clear-headed enough for an honest discussion of preferences. Maybe John would get to try that talented mouth after all. And that's the end of Chapter 10. Come back next time for Chapter 11, when Kate does some detective work at the home of the missing Mrs. Roberts. Gregory MacDonald said, Writing is not a profession, occupation, or job. It is not a way of life. It is a comprehensive response to life. Well, my own life has been pretty eventful lately, so let's see how the response is coming along. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 2,089 words this week, over the course of 2.5 hours, for an average writing speed of 836 words per hour. I wrote on 3 out of 7 days this week. I also spent about seven hours over five days working on audio production, both for this podcast and for the Patreon feed. This week I resumed work on Operation Ibex, my Artax adventure story. I haven't gotten very far yet, but honestly, after taking the month of May off from writing, it feels good to be making any progress at all. Also, I've discovered that the new lunchroom at work is apparently only used by quiet introverts, so I finally have a place where I can write in peace during my lunch break. I know I can get back up to speed with my writing. I just need to get back into the habit of doing it. As I mentioned above, I did a bunch of audio editing for the Patreon feed this week. I've just released the the behind-the-episode commentaries for three more episodes— covering chapters 2, 3, and 4 of The Lost and the Least. These commentaries are exclusive to Patreon patrons, so if you'd like to hear my thoughts on everything from silly in-jokes to police bias to the evolution of Metamorphs elves, go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester and make a pledge today. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out.
The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.